Welcome to Arts Week at Birkbeck and our event online, Upstaging Ireland, the Theatre of Flann O'Brien. My name's Joe Brooker. I'm from the Department of English, Theatre and Creative Writing within the School of Arts here at Birkbeck. Now, I'm, I'm going to be talking here with Toby Harris, who is an expert researcher in to the work of, of Flann O'Brien. He's going to be filling us in with lots of the detail at, about the life and the history and the works. Toby, hello, Toby. Do you want to um, introduce yourself or say anything now? Hi, Joe. Yeah, it's brilliant to be here on this inaugural um, Flann O'Brien Arts Week um, virtual event. Well, Toby, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to introduce this writer to us first, Flann O'Brien. And Really, um, who is he and what lies behind that name? Where do we start? Firstly, uh, Flann O'Brien is, is not the real name of Flann O'Brien. Um, it's actually just one of the many pseudonyms for um, the writer whose birth name is um, Brian and Nolan. Um, so Flann O'Brien, along with Miles Nogopoline, along with the O'Blaver, along with George Noel, along with <laughs> other pseudonyms, um, are all ways of referring to this um, writer, but Flann O'Brien, um, the name under which he published his first novel, What's Swimty Birds, has been the enduring moniker. Um, so he is born in 1911 and is really part of um, what you might call a, um, a late modernist generation of Irish uh, writers. And um, in particular, he forms a... Uh, a sort of um, literary circle with close collaborators, um, now Sheridan and Neil Montgomery, and a number of other kind of um, figures uh, from his period. Um, we are now kind of coming into looking at his work um, in probably the peak of um, his uh, popularity and renown as the satirist Miles Nogopoline mm-hmm. writing for uh, the Irish Times of his column, Christine Lawn, which um, from the second edition onwards is um, published under the name of Miles Nogopoline. Uh, that's a name drawn from the plays of Dion Boutico and um, translates roughly as Miles of the Little Horses, this sort of a clownish trickster character in those Boutico plays. Mm. The column is much more um, successful um, in many ways than um, the novels that he has attempted so far. So in 1939, we had the publication of At Swim Two Birds, um, which probably sold no more than a couple of hundred copies and was renowned by people like Graham Greene and James Joyce, but didn't really make that much of a splash. Um, His uh, novel after that, which for now he's really well known is The Third Policeman, Mm. but of course in that time it had been rejected by a publisher and never saw the light of day. So it's really this column, Christine Lawn, under the name Miles Nogopoline, where he, he makes his mark. And um, at this time, the Irish Times is being read every day by um, between 10 and 20,000 uh, readers. It's very much um, the publication of um, Ireland, um, both, you know, the Anglo-Irish kind of Protestant um, group of Irish society, where its traditional home was, but also an up-and-coming um, Catholic middle class and um, mm. he quickly gained a sort of cult status among this audience. And that brings us um, to, to the plays. The plays are kind of um, coming off the back of this yeah. uh, popularity um, from, from the column. And with the plays, in terms of where we are in history, we're in the middle of the Second World War, aren't we? 
it's 1942-43 really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, and war and conflict are either latent or quite explicit themes in that dramatic material. And they're quite important to, um, to, its, to its genesis. Yeah. Um, if we look, for example, at um, the first um, little play that we're going to be hearing, mm. Mm. that is a, 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 a one-act play which is produced um, as part of a, a variety sort of Christmas review between uh, December 1942 and February 1943. Um, for um, the uh, the Gate Theatre, right? So, um, the uh, the Gate Theatre is one of um, uh, Ireland's main sort of venues for you know high or avant garde theatre. And the other, I guess, really important part to mention about um, World War Two and um, Flann O'Brien at this time, and the reason he turned to theatre is that World War Two leads to a surge in popularity for the theatre in Ireland. Um, so perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, um, what, hmm. what we call the emergency in Ireland, this period of neutrality and isolation, actually leads to a blossoming of right. both professional and amateur theatre because a lot of Irish and English and Scottish actors are unable to, to work hmm. in the mainland United Kingdom, so to speak, and oh. they'll end up touring a lot in Ireland. And so there's a real upsurge in popularity in the production of plays and consumption plays. So his turn to theatre in the middle of World War II might seem strange at first, but <laughs> it's in fact really responding to the surge in popularity of an art form that in some ways epitomised the sort of micro-cultural renaissance that, that Ireland experiences during that emergency period. It's a natural home both for mainstream um, kind of arts and culture uh, but also for avant-garde art and culture. So Ireland's only two sort of genuinely avant-garde magazines of the 1930s and 1940s um, are both theatre-led magazines. So there's Motley in the 1930s um, which is a theatrical magazine around the Gate Theatre published by um, um, Edward Packenham, better known as Lord Longford. Ah. And then there's also um, the uh, commentary magazine, which is almost its inheritor, which is also largely centred around Hilton Edwards, Michael Matley Moore, um, and the Gate Theatre. So it's, um, it's actually a very natural place for him to go. And yeah. um, if we look at the chronology for these plays, <laughs> we see that um, for this period, the winter, you might call it, of 1942 to 1943, he's quite dominant because um, yeah. the, the first is, is part of this Christmas variety show called Jack in a Box, um, which runs for six weeks uh, between December 42 and February 43. Um, Faustus Kelly appears from the 31st of January to 6th of February. Um, and um, then you have the insect play, which mm. appears between 22nd and 28th of March, 1943. Mm. So actually, um, you've got a period in which most, I, I imagine that most theatre goers would have encountered a mild Nicopoline play in some way. Quite time. remarkable. Do we go into this play first a little bit more? And um, this context of this Christmas variety show, can we just paint the picture of that a bit more? Because there were various other bits and playlets playing as part of that the sequence weren't there of which thirst was just one i think there was an oscar wilde 
play of some kind. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, it's um, it's deemed to be an experiment by Hilton Edwards in early write-ups and commentary magazine trying to explain, well, we need to turn to the variety stage, um, you know, in order to, to put out something. But it's actually hugely successful as a format. Um, so you have um, some some writers in, in, um, in the Irish Times, for example, saying more people have seen this show, Jack in the Box, than have seen any of the previous Christmas shows. Mm. Um, and yes, it is a fascinating collection of sort of highbrow and less highbrow content. Mm. Um, it's, a very diverse, it's a very diverse piece. Um, so yeah, just to answer that question, so alongside um, the first playlet, which we're going to hear a little bit of shortly. Um, mm. There is a, an adaptation from Hans Christian Andersen, um, a few avant-garde kind of experiments that may look like that anyway by Matt mm. Moore, um, something called Zoo Blues. There's performances of Irish street ballads, uh, including The Lady Fair and also uh, the ballads of, of, of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, um, well, that's... That's significant because this is only a couple of years after Joyce's book, Finnegan's Wake, comes out, isn't it? And they must have been aware of that, I think. Absolutely, in, in, in 1939. So you can clearly see there's a sense of um, trying to blend, um, you know, high art and modernism and, um, you know, more, more traditional um, styles. There's even, um, uh, like, meta, meta, you might call meta-theatrical sketches. So, um, Leah Moore writes another piece called Four Flops, or Please, Mr. Edwards, Will You Teach Me How to Act? So, so there's this all kind of stuff. And then perhaps most remarkably, um, yeah. it's the only recorded performance of Oscar Wilde's unfinished play, uh, La Sainte Courtesane, or The Woman Covered in Jewels. Wow. So a really remarkable setup, and it, I don't know—not not that much of it survives, really. But but it's um, remarkable. Should we just try to describe what happens in first? Yeah, a- absolutely. So um, the the plot really um, centres on um, a, a a bartender um, who is trying to um, avoid um, being fined for uh, keeping his uh, pub open uh, beyond the, uh, the licensed hours. So that, that's the kind of um, context. Essentially, he's trying to, I guess, exploit a sort of loophole whereby if um, he can get the guard who's come to inspect, um, uh, to check that no one's drinking after hours, um, if he can get him to take a drink, then it means that um, he sort of won't be able to say anything. And Mr. Coulihan, in order to persuade um, the guard to take a drink, tells this most extraordinary um, story about um, his exploits in, in a previous war in World War I, yeah. basically landing in Northern Africa and, and the extreme heat uh, that he encounters in order to make the... Um, make the guard so thirsty that he's, um, he's sort of forced to turn around and take a drink. This is an interesting case of looking at performativity and, and language mm. and the difference between spoken language and reality is sort of blurred here. Yeah. Let's hear an extract from, uh, from this, from Thirst, and specifically from this bartender's description of his past during uh, the First World War. Don't be talking, man. The eyes, the eyes begun to get singed and burdened at the edges. And as well as that, the watery part dried up in a way that was something fierce. Before I know where I was, the eyebrows were gone. No. 
withered and scorched away by the heat they were. Hell itself. It was terrible. There we were, staggering through the bloody, brazen, boiling, blankety-blank heat, the skin chipping and curling off our faces, our bodies drying up and withering into wrinkles like prunes, and the worst of it, a hot, dry thirst coming up out of our necks, like the blast from a furnace. Oh, my God, I was desperate. Desperate. Do you know the first thing the lads done, nearly every one of them, took off their water bottles and threw them away. And do you know why? Do you know why? I'll tell you why. The water bottles were made of metal. Some class of anamillium. Anamillium as thin as paper. When that sun got to work on them bottles, I needn't tell you what happened. First of all, the water grew up to near to boiling point. Even if you could hold the bottle in your hand and open it, the water would be no good to you because it would scald the neck off you. There was only one thing to do with the bottles, get rid of them. Matter of damn, where else happens? And it seems to me, Toby, that this kind of speech captures something that's the essence of this play, which is about, I think you hinted at it a moment ago, the way that on, on the stage here, language is kind of generating uh, an imagined reality, which comes to seem very real, very visceral. So the, the bartender is in this late night bar on the outskirts of Dublin. It's dark. It's, maybe it's a bit cold, but he's using this verbal skill and this kind of gift of the gab to... Um, create a kind of verbal scenery and um, paint a picture with words, if you like, that draws the, the policeman in so that, the, that this policeman, this sergeant, is actually physically affected, isn't he? He doesn't just think, oh, that sounds interesting. He's kind of bodily affected by this narrative so that he, he has to react by actually grabbing a, what is it, a whiskey? I think it's a, is it a whiskey or is it a pint of porter? But either way, he starts drinking everything in sight because he feels the thirst. And so it's, I think you use the word yourself, the performativity of, of language. It, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about performance on stage. We're also talking about that sense, almost in a philosophical sense of language being performative and having effect. I'm often drawn back to the um, manifesto in At Swim Two Birds, where um, Flann O'Brien, as the author this time, um, contrasts um, uh, the, um, the novel, uh, the standard conventional novel, to the play. So his manifesto for the novelist is it should be a self-evident sham for which a reader could regulate at will the degree of his credulity, and that's what At Swim claims to be. However, um, he gets there by suggesting that the standard novel, your realist novel, is inferior to the play in as much as it lacks the outward accidents of illusion, frequently inducing the reader to be outwitted in a shabby fashion and cause to experience a real concern for the fortunes of illusory characters, whereas the play is consumed in a wholesome fashion by large masses. So just to turn that um, back on this speech, I think it's interesting because um, these, the, the setting is sort of so preposterous that <laughs> purely through Coulihan's narrative power, he's going to induce first in the sergeant in the guard, mm. get him to turn around and take a drink. Um, so induce an action. But that is taking place on stage 
with sort of sergeant looking at us and, and Coulihan almost in the spotlight telling the story. Yeah. Um, there's something about examining uh, the power of language. And the other, the, the, the other angle, or two other angles, the first is, um, of course, the centrality of drink. Yeah. And drinking, um, to the humour here. And secondly, I think it's often lost about how much this would have resonated with the audience because um, Kulahan's narrating a, a period from the previous war, he says, and it is quite a brutal experience of um, being landed in North Africa and marched out um, in this blazing heat. And I think there's something quite interesting about the politics of that because Ireland is neutral, yet many Irish did fight in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. They potentially would have been veterans of the First World War in, in the audience. So it's this really fascinating concentration, I guess, of um, quite a potent political theme with this kind of formal device centering around the performativity of language. Yeah. I think we're talking about these political issues actually leads us on quite naturally to Faustus Kelly, the next play. Should we talk about this a bit? Yeah, so Faustus Kelly uh, revolves around the story of a chairman of an urban council somewhere near Waterford, it seems, who um, sells his soul to the devil in order to become a, uh, a TD. In the, yeah. a minister in, in the Doyle or rather a representative. Or an, an MP in effect, yeah. In effect, yeah. There's a lot of background to, to using this theme. Um, firstly, it's an own and own experience uh, by, by this point, having risen to become private secretary to Sean McEntee, who was the minister for local government at that time and the Fianna Fáil government in Ireland. So there's some immediate political context there. Right. And of course, um, Brian O'Nolan, Flann O'Brien would have spent um, a lot of time listening to speeches in, in the Doyle. But there's also the context of uh, the Irish folk Lorick motif of, of selling your soul to the devil. But then more, more interestingly, even than that, there's a surge in what you might call Faustian retellings. So Faust stories, kind of following on from Goethe's Faust in... And the 1930s and 40s basically coinciding with the rise of, of fascism. You have um, Karl Klaus's uh, The Third Valpurgis Night, that refers to an episode, uh, or two episodes rather in Goethe's Faust, where we have the first and second Valpurgis Nights, uh, and that's really treating the rise of the Nazis as a, uh, as a Faustian story. Um, mm. You have Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus in 1947, mm. Paul Valerie's Mon Faust in 1946, Dorothy Sayers' Play The Devil to Pay in 1939. Mm. So there's something here about him picking this story, which had been um, come to many writers' attention across Europe in, as a response almost to the rise of fascism mm. and then applying it to, to an Irish context. So, so this character, Kelly, he really draws on the powers of this mysterious stranger, this rather diabolical figure, to advance his career, to move towards parliament and, um, you know, political success and even personal success with his, uh, you know, his lover. And all of this finally kind of doesn't quite work out, does it? Because the deal kind of, um, the, 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 the stranger is undermined, I think, by the Irish 
uh, political system, isn't that right, Toby? That the, the, the whole Faustian pact sort of sort of unravels at the end. The scheme unravels um, essentially because um, the the stranger has been given a position uh, by Kelly as as a rate collector mm. to sort of permit his presence, and in return, as well as the Faustian bargain, um, of course, the the, the stranger um, has. Um, summoned up lots of resources and money and done all sorts of meddling and magic to make sure that he wins. But yes, he's sort of defeated by um, Irish um, governmental bureaucracy because his appointment as rate collector won't be sanctioned. And this is a point that uh, O'Nolan claims in later writings to be closely informed by real discussions. And, um, you know, he claims to have discussed this with people like Ernest Blythe and so on, who were, who were ministers in, in government um, around this sort of period. Um, and yeah, he's unsanctioned, um, which means he um, is unable to, uh, to to work, to live, uh, to buy a drink or buy cigarettes, it's suggested, because yeah. he won't be sanctioned by the Minister for Local Government. It's um, a Kafkaesque element, actually. Yeah. Right? It's, just, it's a bit yeah. odd and dreamlike the way that none of this can work because he's not been given a bureaucratic sanction to to, to have a job. It really, I mean, you mentioned Kafka, that sense of, um, yeah, there's this bureaucratic rule has gone against him and suddenly his identity is taken away. He almost doesn't exist and he literally leaves this mortal plane, I suppose, and goes back to where he, whence he comes. But, you know, we're talking about the, the Mephistopheles figure here, aren't we? And yet he's, it's, it, I mean, part of the extraordinary joke of this is this figure of cosmic power is, is, is unable to, do, uh, to cope with the, the bureaucracy of Irish, uh, the Irish civil service in the 1940s, you know, that's, there's a sort of extraordinary um, pathos yeah. about that. It's a feature of um, Faust stories, you might call them, that Faust is redeemed. So in Favre O'Leary's Shana, um, the cobbler outwits the devil um, in some way and is, is therefore redeemed and saved from damnation. In, I won't go into the details, it's rather complicated, but in, in Goethe's Faust, Faust is, is redeemed by God. Um, he's prevented from, he makes the bargain, but somehow slips out of it. So mm. heaven at the end. But this is a very, very much a parodic debunking of the story because the stranger is sort of rendered powerless by this bureaucratic action. And um, that leads him to just renounce the pact. And when he comes back on um, in the epilogue to the play, um, so he says, not for any favour in heaven or, or earth or hell would I take back Kelly and the others with me to where I live to be in their company forever and ever and ever. Mm. I want nothing more of Irish public life. So the devil renounces the pact and the Faust figure Kelly is redeemed by, by default, you could call it. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we should hear a bit of Kelly. And let me just set up the bit that we're going to hear. Kelly, this is really when he's trying to make his rise in politics. And he's he has a kind of political platform, doesn't he, that he's, he's kind of articulating. And he starts to say, you know, what it is that he stands for and what his campaign that's going to take him to the centre of Irish politics is going to be about. So let's hear, uh, hear about that. Yes, fair enough. I think I'll say a few words about the banks, an emigration that is bidding fair to drain our land of its lifeblood and spelling ruin to the business life of the community. The flight from the land is another thing that must be arrested at no far distant day. 
please God, when I get as far as a doll, I will have a word in season to say on that subject to the powers that be. And of course, the scandal of the runny drainage scheme is another subject upon which I will make it my particular business to say a few well-chosen words. Other members may sing dumb as they choose. Other members may be gagged by the party whip. The opportunist and the time server may not worry about such things. But please God, if I win the confidence of the people of this country, if they see fit to entrust me with the task of representing them in the National Assembly, I will speak my mind freely and fearlessly. Well, big up, if you'd only talk like that when you're above on the platform, you'd have devil ears standing down from the government to make room for you. I'm telling you now, the country is in a very serious position. We must proceed with the utmost caution. Neither right nor left will save us but the middle of the road. Rash monetary or economic experiments will only lead us deeper into the mire. What the country requires most is informed and strong leadership and a truth to political wrangling, jobbery and jockeying for position. We have had enough of that, too much of it. Public departments must be ruthlessly pruned. Give me a free hand and I will save you a cool £100,000 in every one of them. I warrant you that if the people of this country see fit to send me to the doll, there will be scandals in high places. I happen to know a thing or two. This is not the place or the time to mention certain matters. Suffice it to say that certain things are happening that should not happen. These things are known to me at least. I can quote chapter and verse. I have it all at my fingertips and in due time I will drag the whole unsavory details in the inexorable light of day. No doubt they will seek to silence me with their gold. They will try to purchase my honor. I just like to ask Toby about what do you think this platform stands for and, and is Miles Nagopolin satirizing anything in particular here with this, this sort of political rhetoric? Yes, it is an interesting question because um, it wasn't exactly unknown who he was and what he was doing at this stage. Um, and there was a lot of writers and actors working in the civil service as well. So it was fairly broadly known in many ways that it was him who was writing this play and was also an acting civil servant. And so that limits him in some ways from criticising De Valera, uh, McEntee and the other figures of Vienna Foyle in power at this time in 1942-1943. In I've had a look at the, um, the points here in Kelly's rhetoric that he's making. So yeah. this is like, I'm going to say a few words about the banks, so an anti-bank kind of suggestion there. Neither right nor left will save us but the middle of a road and I'll save you £100,000 in every, every department. And even though in, this, in the play world, Kelly is, uh, depicts himself as sort of the independent candidate of business, some kind of independent challenger, the rhetoric is actually a, a fairly close match for the rhetoric of Fianna Foyle when it was more of a populist party pre its proper conquest of, of power. In the, in, throughout the mid to late 1930s. So if we look a little bit further back from that, we can find some resonances here. So for example, um, that point about a few words about the banks, well, McEntee 
1928 writes an election leaflet about the banks. So the banks, which have been mm. bleeding the Irish farmer, crushing Irish industry, investing Irish money abroad. A Fianna Fáil government would not be tied up with the old Unionist Party and the banks. So there's a sense of a, an Anglo-Irish sort of association between the Protestant establishment, the, the old Unionist Party, um, and the banks that's being criticised here. And the final point I want to draw on is neither right nor left will save us, but the middle of yeah, the road. That's very striking, isn't it? It's almost like we would now call that centrism, wouldn't we? We would, we would call that <laughs> centrism. Yeah, um, interesting to think about that right now. Um, uh, the current context. Um, there's a certain resonance in the 1920s, which I'm suggesting is quite safe territory for O'Nolan to satirise, where it was actually Italian fascism, so Mussolini's fascism, that was seen as a, a kind of neither right nor left alternative to mainstream politics. And um, there's even a case of um, De Valera um, leaning on the example of, of, of Italy, fascist Italy, at one point. And um, I think there's something, of, there's something of that here. Um, and so there's a latent kind of anti-fascist critique, because obviously it'd be very resonant to make any kind of suggestion mm. in the middle of a war. Well, look, let's go to the next reading, because this is again from Faustus Kelly, isn't it? Where Kelly is um, responding to the, um, the visitor from England, Captain Shaw. And this brings him to a kind of peroration about Ireland. Let's, let's hear that. What shall I say of those who are charged before God with the rule and government of the English nation? Not to mention its dominions, dependencies, mandates and colonies beyond the seas. What shall I say of the corrupt, misguided, obtuse and venal time servers who have brought through a travesty of justice and government shame and dishonour on the British flag? With what scornful word or phrase shall I stigmatise at the bar of history the interventions of successive British governments in the affairs of my own country, Ireland? The lamp of civilization at a time when Europe sat in darkness, cradle of the faith and home of martyrs. With what pitiless and inexorable terminology will I lash and lash again these debased minions? who presume to tamper with our historic race, to drive millions of our kith and kin in coffin ships across the seven seas, to dwell in an alien clime with the naked savage, who have destroyed our industries and our crafts and our right to develop our national resources, who have not hesitated to violate the sacred tabernacle of our nation to steal therefrom, defile and destroy our melodious and kingly language, the Irish language, our sole badge of nationhood, our only historic link with the giants of our national past, Nile of the Nine Hostages, who penetrated to the Alps in his efforts to spread the gospel, King Cormac of Cashel, confessor, saint and lawgiver, heroic Saint Lardens O'Toole, who was the patron saint of Ireland's greatest city, and Patrick Sarsfield, who rode by night to destroy, no matter what risk to himself, the hated foreigner's powder train at Ballymead. With what appalling and frightening course, Captain Shaw, will I invoke the righteous anger of the Almighty against these wicked men who live in gilded palaces in England, 
cradling luxury and licentious extravagance, knowing nothing and caring nothing for either the English masses, the historic and indefeasible Irish nation, the naked Negro and distant and distressed India, or the New Zealand pygmy on his native shore. With what stern word will I invoke the righteous anger of Almighty God upon their heads, Captain Shaw? So that's Kelly with his vision of Ireland and Irishness, which is wonderfully rhetorical, but it's also very derivative. And that's part of the point, I think, that it's this is rhetoric, this is cliche, this is boilerplate in a way. Um, and, and Miles Nogopoulin was a great lover and kind of analyzer and anatomizer of, of, of cliche, actually. And that's probably quite a relevant concept here. The excessive um, parodic nature of his language is, is really interesting. Again, it exposes its artificiality. And there's almost a couple of slightly odd malapropisms, I think, in this <laughs> language as well. Like, with what pitiless and inexorable terminology will I lash and lash again? And again, that might be rooted in, a, in an older tradition of kind of satirical Irish playwriting. We need to bear in mind at this point that you could you could say that um, O'Nolan finds himself in uncomfortably close proximity in some ways to movements around uh, the far right that were quite sympathetic to fascism in, in Ireland that tended to coalesce around um, the Irish language revivalist movement. Mm. Um, so, so in English, two competing groups were um, known as Architects of the Resurrection and the Victorious Generation. He writes a few columns at the time um, mm. criticising um, the sort of irresponsibility of the sometimes racist um, rhetoric. Yeah. And, um, he, uh, O'Nolan's a great lover of, of Irish literature and history, but there were also him and his, and his some archival evidence suggests that him and his, um, his co-writer, um, Noel Gumbry, are aware that there's this sort of potential comparison to be made between these hyper-nationalist Irish language revivalists and um, the, uh, the fascist sort of strain in European politics. Was there something about this play that, that, that was a bit, a bit controversial and a bit troubling to people? Because he, he later said, didn't he, I think it was in newspaper columns maybe, that the play had been a bit too much for people to take, it was politically um, stirred things up a bit too much, and so, you know, it was taken off. And he may have been um, exaggerating that, but do you think there's any truth in the idea that he, he was sort of offending a bit too many, too many political sensibilities with this play? And as you said, in a number of columns, two or three, suggest mm. that the, the play actually was, was too much to bear and was too, too critical of certain, you know, mm. exaggerated certain national failings, he says. Mm, mm, mm. So, um, yeah, but there's a real sense in which he tries to reclaim um, some kind of satirical bite for it. And um, we'll see this a bit more in um, the, the subsequent discussion of the insect play, but essentially, whereas the plays have quite a mixed critical reputation now, mm. um, on the basis that they didn't go down very well. When you dig into the detail of the reviews, especially for the, the next play we're going to look at, the insect play, many reviewers just didn't like just how satirical these plays were. Let's talk about the insect play, which actually has another name, doesn't it? Rhapsody in Stephen's Green. 
which is, yeah, sort of subtitled The Insect Play. Now, this is also 1943. He does all this theatrical work in extraordinarily quick succession, actually. I mean, it's one of those things where you look back and think, how did an artist produce so much in such a short time? A bit like we say about the Beatles now or something like that. And he's, you know, he's done these three, the three most important plays of his life in the space of about six months or so, I suppose. The Gate is sort of the alternative theatre hub of Dublin at this time, if, if the Abbey is where your more mainstream kind of cultural nationalist um, plays are, mm. are going to be put on. Mm. The Gate is something different. And um, it's the project of um, a partnership between Hilton Edwards and um, Michal Matlimor, otherwise known as um, Alfred Wilson. So, so both these are effectively two, uh, two men with some links to, to Ireland who have Gaelicised their identities, their English, uh, English kind of figures ultimately, and come over and, and really kick off this um, avant-garde project in the Gate Theatre. And um, it's worth kind of digging into what, what really happened here. So mm. essentially the letter show in 1942, Edwards um, starts reaching out to, uh, to Miles or to, to Brian O'Nolan after reading the column uh, and invites him to, to work in some way together. And they strike up a friendship. Um, he definitely spends some time in Edwards' company. He pitches the idea of Faustus Kelly to Edwards as mm. a gate production first and then is invited to work on um, the Insect Play. So the Insect Play is a play by the Chapek brothers, um, who are, I'd call them Czech, kind of progressive dramatists, most famous for, um, you know, um, the universal robots, and for coining that term, robot. Yeah. I mean, that's a very important play, really important play, because as you say, it really brings the concept of the robot into cultural history in the what 1920 about 1922 or so isn't it uh, it's, a, it's you know really seminal work of science fiction exactly yeah it's very very significant stuff and um the insect play is um is, is pretty world famous i mean it, it practically it practically premieres in in multiple cities so it's it's it's, it's basically put on first in in um, in then czechoslovakia then it's in moscow then it's in new york it's translated into england published in English by Paul Selfer in 1923. Um, it's a significant play. These are anti-fascist writers. Um, both, both brothers um, um, die in the Nazi period. Is it possible to summarise this play? In let's taking, taking Miles's version specifically, Rhapsody and Stephen Green, is it possible to summarise what actually happens in this play? Act one consists of, um, uh, it basically satirises different social groups and beginning from the top and working your way down to the bottom. So the first act satirises what were in the 1920s, flappers. Oh. Yeah. So, so kind of upper class, sexually libertinous, empty-headed young men and women who go around writing poetry and falling in love with each other. Bright young things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, and in, um, in O'Nolan's version, in the Miles Nagopin version, he converts them to sort of what have been described as um, Trinity College bees. So that firstly, oh. they're, they're no longer butterflies, they're bees. Um, they're no longer male and female, they're exclusively male. And there's certainly quite homosexual um, undertones um, going on because um, they have a choice of waiting to mate with a queen or using their sting 
which would kill them, um, but is depicted as an act of sexual pleasure. So that's a very interesting take on um, on on the original, to, to, and, and again, quite daring. It gets uh, the play into quite a lot of trouble. The use of um, the Catholic Boy Scouts as a chorus is quite daring. Um, it, it, daring in the context of Irish culture for, for you know, like a number of decades afterwards. Yeah. What is it? What happens in Act Two? Because I think that's where we've got them. We start to go down the sort of social class scale, don't we? In the the satire of Act Two. Yeah, exactly. So in Act Two, um, we we do we go down to the level of a kind of cork civil servant and a sort of. Um, Dublin Gurry is a Dublin kind of lower bourgeoisie represented by dung beetles. And then we have a kind of um, parasite who's like a kind of communist. Oh, yeah. And mm. we have a duck who is a, an English sounding duck who is an ignuman fly in the original. Um, he goes around murdering the other characters. He's a corporate <laughs> as like a capitalist exploiter. So we're sort of in the world of, of everyday trading market society, I guess you could. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a, a couple of dung beetles who a, a, a sort of man and wife couple who who present their ball of dung as their capital. But then we get into Act Three, and we're now going to hear a bit from Act Three, aren't we? The beginning of Act Three, I think. And Hugh again is going to read for us where there's actually a human figure in the park as well, isn't there? A tramp. It's very hard, but it's very interesting. Them little boogers with all the legs on them is queer little men. Don't give a damn for one another. Every man for himself. You hate me or I'll hate you. The universe approaches its supreme crisis. Soon it will be liberated, calm, triumphant. I am about to be born. Now take your man. He thinks he's number one. Never heard of anybody he likes as well as himself. He thinks he's the whole bloody woody. And look at the size of him, stuffed into a bloody egg. A thing or day for breakfast without looking at it. Of course, I know what's wrong with all these lads. They've no proper system or way of working. They're not organised, if you understand me. Strange lights are glowing. Strange sweet sounds are thickening the air. A frightful and majestic cataclysm is at hand. Because I think I put my finger on it there. That's the difference between myself and me likes and them lads. We have a system. A proper way of walking. We have what they call a plan. Every man for his own job, all working away together for the good of all. What they call the nation. I will soar aloft, traverse vast spaces, accomplish miraculous tasks. I am nearly born. You got to know, I think that's about the size of it. Human beings are civilised because they do be walking for one another and walking together. But these mad hearers here to be hating one another. And that's just the difference between the two. Hey, what's this? Ants! We got millions of the buggers. I must be sitting on an anthill. Well, that was the tramp there in the middle of Stephen's Green, um, in the middle of, of Rhapsody and Stephen's Green. And let's just talk, Toby, a bit about this figure of the tramp. Is he reflecting on the action? Is he a sort of chorus figure, do you think? Yes, I think so. Um, he does function as a kind of internal observer of the play's action. Um, and I would suggest that this is a sort of distancing effect in common to a lot of what you might describe as progressive fear at the time, which is seeking 
to present um, action and dialogue, but also open up critical distance. Mm. So rather than immerse the audience purely in um, that, um, that action, devices are used to puncture it, to enable the audience to try and contemplate it rationally. And um, those devices are often quite humorous. That example of Brecht lowering boards down onto the stage to describe what's about to happen, just so you know what's going to happen next. And, and kind and of the trance doing something similar here. Kind of breaking up the perspective, so it's not one perspective, but but almost more of a montage, I suppose, of, of points of view. We we should go on just to, to describe what happens in the rest of this play. It's really quite extraordinary. It's quite a crescendo, because the last act, act, act three is dedicated to the ants, isn't it? And you get uh, sort of armies of different kinds of ants. Again, it, it's very much, I would describe it as, mirroring the original in terms of roughly what happens, but uh, layering on incendiary amounts mm. of local colour and characterization, because yeah. essentially the ants are a warlike society um, and the play is, 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 is showing how, in a way, the working class can be co-opted into these collectivist enterprises that are very violent. And over a sequence of minor disputes, I think um, it's a war between, um, you know, effectively for a way between two blades, two blades of grass in the um, in the original. It's a war over a, a, a who owns a dead beetle in, in, in Flannery Brian's version. Um, the ants kind of whip themselves into this kind of genocidal fury. Yeah. And what um, what Nolan does um, in this satirical move, which caused such huge amounts of offence at the time, is he, he makes the Red Ants, Ulster Unionists or like Loyalists, mm. um, with droll Belfast accents. Um, that's the main kind of tribe of ants who refer to themselves as being part of the Ant Kingdom and the Ant Empire. And then we get, um, we get um, British ants uh, that, that are brought in in some kind of, uh, in, in a dispute with them in a sort of internecine war, which is obviously, you know, a really strong, you know, it's, it's, it's grounded in, in reality, you know, but, but, but what, there was a lot of real and potential conflict between um, Northern Irish and Unionists and, and the Union, so to speak, so, so it's, it resonates, actually. And then at the end, um, there's a huge battle and many die, and the Green Ants The Green Ants, yeah. Northern Irish come in and declare, uh, you know, defeat, defeat um, these Northern Irish ants and declare, you know, that only Irish will be spoken in the land from there on. Um, so it, it, essentially you have this, this satire of uh, specifically through the use of really specific dialects and language of uh, the whole conflict on the island of Ireland, including yeah. the role of the British within it. And it all centers around language. And at one point, an engineer among uh, the, the loyalist ants comes in with a, a new machine, which is in the Chapek original, is, a, is, an, is, is described as, a, as an unprecedented machine for the crushing of lives. But in this um, version, in, in Flannery Brown's version, is described as a, as a political slogan. And that really resonates, I think, with the way that language was weaponized at this time and used to, to, to cultivate murder and killing. And the ants fear, the Northern Irish ants fear, is that they'll be made to speak Latin, a dead language. Oh. Home then, rule is Rome rule. Home rule is Rome rule, exactly. So, so and, and this, um, you know, it's worth noting that many, some, he had some defenders who said that really he was using this play to highlight what happened 
in a nation when a part convinces itself it's the whole. Mm. But many attackers who felt that this satire was lampooning the cause of, of Irish nationalism. And I think what, what he's really done is, is he's, he's commented in a very obvious and overt way on certain things that you weren't really supposed to say or, or, or speak at this time. It wasn't that commonly done to draw attention to this kind of conflict on the island of Ireland in this way. I mean, I think a couple of things just want to draw out of there. One is this theme of language, actually, that we've, you've now found running through all the plays. So we've got this sense of language as a weapon at the end of the insect play. We've got the rhetoric of Faustus Kelly, which you identified as a, a satire of, well, of language movements, right-wing language movements. And then, of course, we had the performativity of language in first. There's actually something that, through all these plays about language on stage being powerful, isn't there? And looking at rhetoric, sort of staging rhetoric, and maybe going back to our title, upstaging rhetoric in a way. And the other thing I just want to draw out is you've talked there about um, the conflict on the island of Ireland, that it's as if he's sort of staging this Irish conflict here, which is almost, a, is it like a microcosm of, of a, a global conflict? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, I think that by making the conflict um, even by sort of using this material, by staging the play in this way and, and locating it in Ireland, he is drawing a comparison between really genocidal conflicts in East Asia and Europe at the time mm. and, um, you know, what might be seen as potentially equally lethal conflicts at home. I think it's a very uncomfortable um, comparison to be drawing mm. and that kind of what gets um, what gets the play in, in, in trouble. I don't think this play, The uh, Rhapsody in Stephen Green, has ever really had its due. It um, seems to me that it kind of sank out of view quite quickly, despite being a major production and a really fascinating work. And it didn't really come back into view until the 90s, did it, when I think they found a manuscript and republished it. And I think we're now able to see what an important work this is. But it, do you think that it fell out, fell out of out of sight for a long time? Yeah, but that's, that's right. I mean, and li obviously, literally out of sight in the sense of um, the manuscript was lost and then recovered from Gate Archives and republished in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. it's, essentially, if you look at the reviews, um, the idea that um, it was uh, not a success of audiences, um, that it lacked resonance, that it was banal topicalities more appropriate to the variety stage and not serious. And um, this isn't the case in, in what, what comes in terms of the reviews. In fact, it provokes quite a furious debate in which more kind of right-wing conservative critics, you might say, like Thomas Hogan, um, mm. accused him of using the Chapex uh, to burlesque divisions in our country to make a theatrical holiday, to mock mm. the movement for reviving a national language, to sneer at the people of Ireland, North and South. So what, what they don't like is that by depicting, especially these Northern Irish ants, is almost doing something you're not supposed to do, which is talk really about this difference and this conflict. And that's just not, that's not okay. That's not the kind of dignified Irishness that, that, what they, that the, the you know, official, more official kind of organs want. I think the later defence that Miles would make about um, this, this kind of work, as you said, it applies more in general to all of all of the dramatic work, but actually it's too close to the bone in terms of political satire, mm. is, is really borne out because they're not criticised for being bad plays in the way that um, that has been um, in, interpreted. 
And I think the only reason that modern critics um, have kind of latched onto that to some extent is probably just not being close enough to the original context of what was deemed a good or a bad play and, and what was going on really in theatre at the time. You can contextualise this work to show that, you know, it, it, in many ways it's participating in a, in a movement in, in European theatre which is not that well understood now and, and represents now. So I think that makes a very good case for these plays in general. So can we just talk a bit, standing back from this, to think a bit about how do they fit into his career? It seems to me that he's he's very well known for At Swim Two Birds and now for The Third Policeman, you know, it came out after his death um, and it's rightly now regarded as a, a masterpiece. And he, and the, his, his newspaper column, uh, Krishkin Lawn, is rightly celebrated and loved. I think these, these plays are still the poor relations, aren't they, in terms of critical neglect? The problem in many ways that plays of this nature have is that um, unless they're performed, as we've tried to do a little bit on, on this um, event, unless they're performed and, and seen and heard, the, the, the humour doesn't quite come across as well, I find, as it does from, you know, the, uh, the novels, which are designed to be, you know, consumed in, in solitary as, as, as a swim to birds or highlights. And that means you lose something um, because humour is a really important ingredient in tying together the critique and tying together the formal devices that are at work here. But I think if we restore that, then we see that actually these are both interesting in terms of form, interesting in terms of content. Mm. And I think the way forward has got to be um, more performances of them. We should just mention there is a kind of ongoing project to make a film of the uh, insect play as well, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. It's an, yeah, an, an animated uh, film that's being, um, you know, spearheaded by um, Alana Gillespie. So there's definitely work going on um, in this area. And um, I think that that, 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 will, that will help. And I think the other more important point to make is that there isn't particular evidence to suggest that um, Brian Nolan uh, saw himself as a novelist or that his other, as first, first and foremost, nor that his, um, his co-writers did, um, Sheridan and Montgomery. Um, they both experimented and wrote a lot of, of drama. Um, and for O'Nolan, he went on to write numerous radio plays and teleplays after yeah. this, towards the end of his career. So the, um, it's really important to bear in mind that um, this, this is a very important form. And, in, and you know, in his prose work, so in the journalism, and in the novels, actually, it's, it's everywhere, this kind of interest in the theatre and in drama. Yeah. So it's always we can, take the, we can take our reading of the plays beyond the plays, so to speak, and apply that to, to the way that kind of blends um, with, his, with his more novelistic or, or journalistic prose. Well, that's terrific. I think we should bring this uh, recording, this, this event, to a close now. So I'll just wrap up very briefly by saying thanks to everybody who's, who's listened and thanks for your interest in Flan O'Brien and in Arts Week and in Birkbeck and, and in what we're, what we're doing uh, here. I've really enjoyed this conversation with Toby and, and hearing his expertise about Flan O'Brien and his theatre. And Toby and I are also both very grateful to uh, our friend, Mr. Hugh Wilde, for his, his readings, which have, have illuminated these plays. So I will just conclude uh, by, uh, again, thanking you for listening to this discussion, which I hope has brought back uh, into focus a rather neglected part of Flann O'Brien's 
oeuvre, the, the theatre, which from 1942, 1943, which isn't so well known now, but I hope we have shown, uh, stands up to a lot of re-examination for the work that it did in staging and upstaging Ireland.